This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. I'm Jack Pelzer, joined by Dan Hodgman. Hey, everybody. Hey, Jack. How's it going? Uh, it's going just fine, man. It's been a uh, long day today. <laughs> you could say that again. It's been a long week so far, and it's actually a shortened week, which is just wild. Yeah, I just feel like I've just been running around uh, making various media appearances. Right? I feel like I haven't I haven't slowed down, but I can't complain. You know what? It's beginning of the year. Hit the ground running. Let's have some fun and uh, looking forward to this subject. Yeah, let's do it. We got some uh, got some new energy here. All right. Well, uh, before we get to our subject du jour, I just want to say that uh, we got a very special guest today talking to Jeff. Um, he's a three-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award, which is the highest honor in business journalism. He's Interesting. a special reporter in the money and investing section of the Wall Street Journal. All right. Dan, you're a Wall Street Journal man, right? Every single morning. I've been uh, reading it for years and years. I've got it on my phone. I get the paper copy. Uh, it's on my iPad. You get, you get the it. paper copy. You're I get the paper copy every entombed morning. entombed with you like the pharaohs. They're everywhere. I, I love it. <laughs> a little behind the times. Um, but we have none other than uh, Mr. Greg Zuckerman joining us for an interview today. So that's going to be super interesting. I know he's working on a new book about the founder of uh, Renaissance, the hedge fund. Oh, awesome. Um, I'm sure they'll talk all about that. But uh, before we let them do that, we'll check in on the markets. And I know it's become a running joke where last week, I think I made the comment that, you know, no matter what day it is, it's going to be a market high. <laughs> it feels like that right now. I think we're looking at S&P's 10 highs already this year and feels like as many trading days. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I want to talk about is this phenomenon of the uh, melt-up that may or may not be – it depends on what you think about the underlying fundamentals in the equities market. But uh, there's a lot of feeling that we're experiencing a melt-up right now. And sort of what's characteristic of a melt-up, it means that the fundamentals, they're not driving this uh, move higher. It's more people jumping in because they don't want to miss out. Absolutely. And, and I think it's really important to keep our eyes on it and just keep in the back of our head right now. Equities in general, they're designed to continue to push higher. That's what they're there to do. Uh, people are dumping their retirement into this. They're, they're going to be sitting in it for a long time. Um, equities are designed to continuously just push higher. And right now, there's no bad news. Um, these markets to push against, there needs to be something or reason saying, turn around, sell this thing at least for a little bit. But right now, we're not seeing bad news. Economic numbers continue to roll in and showing good signs for economic growth in the United States. Take unemployment. Prime example, unemployment, Jack, I know you and I have talked about it. Mm -hmm. You know, That's like the exciting day to, as a trader. I mean, you want to be around for the employment numbers. Non-farm, hit the unemployment rates. Let's see what private payrolls are doing. You know, those That's fun stuff. And those numbers keep showing good numbers. Yeah, but uh, I'm going to roll in a few stats right now just to get an idea of sort of how this has been going. I think the other day, and I believe it still holds true, is that we've gone something like 70 days in a row without a 1% loss or more. It sounds about right. Uh, that's nuts. Uh, the VIX is obviously super low. Yep. Um, I think so, last I looked was 12. Yeah, that's like nothing. And some, some, some of the things that are sort of worrying, you know, from a valuation standpoint is uh, price to sales – has not been this high since the dot-com bubble. And one of the um, metrics that Warren Buffett likes to look at 
is the ratio of total market capitalization to the U.S. GDP, and it has actually never been higher than it is currently. So to give sort of the uh, pessimist melt-up thing, I think what we're seeing here is you're right. Those uh, headline numbers like unemployment are good. Uh, many of the like real basic fundamentals, manufacturing stuff, and uh, especially the GDP in general. I mean, the Atlanta Nowcast or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. for those out there, I don't know how familiar you are with that, but they you know, only release GDP numbers really every uh, quarter and they right. revise them. But they do have uh, – the Atlanta Fed does have sort of like a number that they try and put out in the moment that updates I think like every week. And um, they're looking at an estimate of only about like 1.8% GDP. And I think it's worrying when you look at a lot of these companies out there. Apple's up 108% or whatever this year. I right. mean their, their earnings aren't up that much. In, the last, in this last 70-day run that have hit trillion-plus dollar market caps. So – I, I think a lot of what's driving that, I mean, it's certainly not the earning fundamentals, but it is a ton of Fed money because we may or may not be living through QE4 right now. Right. And But I want to kind of bring it back to one thing you said. This is some things resemble the dot-com bubble. Yes. Right now, though, what I think is one of the most important things to be keeping our eye on is to recognize that all sectors, all sectors are continuing to grow steadily. There's not one sector go back to the housing crisis. Um, the housing, it was like a housing bubble um, performing insanely high compared to everything else. Right now, most of these sectors are all moving steadily together. And that shows sign of, in my opinion, good economic growth. Yeah. I think the biggest difference between the market of the dot-com bubble, uh, the interest rates were much higher. They were above you know, 4%. Now, our interest rates are still super low. And I think we fall in this thing is, I mean, where else are you going to put your money in? I mean. Right. I mean, that's the place to do it. Unless you're going to, I don't know, head for the hills with your gold. and you know. Right. And I know we've talked before about reason behind interest rates and why people wouldn't put their money towards equities. Um, and probably a couple of months ago, I think we talked about it on the podcast, um, but there are certain funds that have to be diversified yeah. in certain specific percentages. Um, but I think for the average human being, no matter what interest rates are, if you're seeing steady growth like this in an equities market, you want your money to be there. Uh, what was Hell yeah, 2019? Double-digit double growth. <laughs> you don't hear that number very often in any sort of investment over one year. Log in right now. You can go look at your 401k, and I got a feeling you're seeing big percentage numbers of growth. So I think uh, what we would both agree on is this could go a whole lot higher. And I still think in generally we're looking – we're in the buy the dip mode. I mean there's no reason not to. But I think we mentioned we're digesting all numbers is good. Mm -hmm. That being said, I would beware of the move that is driven by a catalyst. We're not going to know what that catalyst is yet. But – there is something at some point, nothing ever lasts forever. And maybe no. it won't be a huge pullback. I'm not, you know, I'm not a complete doom and gloom guy. I am sometimes. We're not but, going back to December 24th, 2018, where we saw it give up 18% or something in one day. Yeah. I mean, unless there was some crazy, you know, black swan type event. Right. I would say that it's a pretty, you know, a good strategy right now to be buying into this unless something fundamentally changes. And it's going to take more than a bad number here and there because we're already getting those and they bounce back right away. Strong bounce backs. I, I, I would agree. I think right now it's 
you're looking for weakness to kind of continue to buy this market. That's how this market is setting up, has been setting up for a long time, especially over the last 70 days. Um, I think we saw a dip a few weeks ago. Great entry opportunities. Um, this continue to be long. These mar- This market is setting up for that. The, what I would say is you just have to, yes, look for that catalyst. What it's going to be, we don't know. And you're probably not going to know in the moment. But if you're watching order flow, when we start to see this market work its way down and you'll you'll recognize it, oh man, this is starting to go quick. I better be careful. You'll recognize that. And you start to watch order flow and orders coming into uh, the marketplace, you're going to start to see things getting really thin. And that means basically computers are starting to shut off. Um, institutions are saying, okay, let's stop buying this thing up. Let's wait for it to slow down. And that's where we're going to start to get in again. So we're, there's a dip. It's it's gonna it's inevitable. It, this market has to eventually sell off hefty at some point. Um, it's a matter of just how, how are you going to recognize it and how are you going to be prepared to trade that? Yeah, that's great. Uh, I think that's something we can all take from this. Um, so I think for now, we'll leave that as our market reaction today. And uh, we'll head to the interview. So, okay, dope. Without further ado, let's send it over to Jeff for today's Limit Up interview with the Wall Street Journal's Greg Zuckerman. You're really going to enjoy this. I'll see you after with a little bit of housekeeping. Welcome again to another edition of the Limit Up podcast by Top Step Trader. My name is Jeff Carter. You can find me online at pointsandfigures.com or on Twitter at Points and Figures. Hey, I'm raising money to name a suite after the unknown soldier at the National World War II Museum. And if you can go on GoFundMe and support that, that would be great. Even 10 bucks helps. Um, welcome to the program today, Greg Zuckerman. Greg Zuckerman has a very distinguished background. He is a reporter with the Wall Street Journal. And uh, looking at his record, he has broken a lot of very, very fundamental stories that have happened since the turn of the century in finance. So you were, Greg, you did kind of the story on WorldCom when they blew up. You did the story on the collapse of hedge fund Amaranth Advisors in 2008. And then you did the stories that kind of revealed the discord between Bill Gross, the founder of PIMCO, and it kind of caused him to leave. So that's really interesting. How do you find yourself in the middle of these sorts of stories? So, um, and, and great to be here. My job at the Wall Street Journal has uh, changed over time. I don't cover a beat. I look for big stories and generally about investors and how they make money and how they lose money. I'm a sports guy, so I tend to write about home runs and strikeouts. I think there are a lot of lessons and a lot of drama that, that come from people who make uh, big investments and do really well and, and companies that do well and those that do poorly. <laughs> Um, and a lot of drama, a lot of lessons. So some of the stories you mentioned and others that I've done in my career, try to focus on some of these lessons and, and the drama behind the scenes. Okay, interesting. Um, you're a three-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award, which is the highest honor in business journalism. And for those of you that don't read the Wall Street Journal, I'm a subscriber. I've been a subscriber since the 80s. It truly isn't fake news. It's truly good journalism. What do you make of the climate today um, as you look around at what's going on in the media? It's a great question. So uh, on the one hand, it's a difficult climate in that we've got the president and others uh, saying what the media does is, is fake news and being especially critical of, of the media. And that can make our lives more difficult. On the other hand, his actions and the actions of, and the criticism of others uh, have brought have actually 
focused, a little more attention on what we do. And some people are more appreciative as a result. So our subscriptions have soared and as have the New York Times and others. So it's a weird dichotomy that our life in some ways is more difficult. And I think it's easier for people to criticize us. I did a story a few years ago about an investor named Jeff Gunlack, who um, runs the biggest bond fund. He's probably the big, well, most well-known bond investor out there. And my story was about how he wasn't doing as well and some investors were concerned. And as many billionaires are, they're overly uh, sensitive to criticism. Um, you would think it'd be the other way around, but it's not. Um, and he, he, on a conference call with thousands of investors, he started insulting me and uh, really? what he called me. It was kind of funny. He called me a mother, mother Zucker. He called a me mother, a mother Zucker. Zucker. Ah, good. good yeah. Good, good pun. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I don't think years ago people would have taken on the media. So in some ways, again, it's, it's, it's more difficult environment, but there's a, an appreciation for what we do as well. I think there's certain cases where, you know, you can say fake news or whatever. And, and it seems entirely fair where you can root out the bias, right? And then in other cases, it, it totally is unfair because you're doing exactly what you did, which was uncover some salty activity, right? And that's sort of what the fourth estate and freedom of the press kind of is enshrined in the constitution to do that sort of thing. Yeah. And you, um, it, people have a right to criticize what we do and critique what we do. Some of my best sources are people that, that didn't like what I wrote and it's often constructive criticism, but criticized what I did. And we have a uh, conversation about it and we're open to that. We, we um, most people don't know, don't aren't familiar with people in the press, but we are scared of making mistakes. The biggest thing you can do wrong at the Wall Street Journal is make an error. It's worse, even if you're on the front page all the time, but if you make too many errors, you get fired. That's the last thing we want to do. We're very sensitive to mistakes. So we are open to improvement and we didn't do a great job. Uh, not we, the Wall Street Journal, but the media didn't do necessarily a great job of understanding the, the mood of the country ahead of the 2016 election and why so many people were unhappy. So um, we're, we're, there were reasons to, to criticize. But that said, um, we also try to play it down the middle, especially the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. I think, I think the Wall Street Journal does an especially good job of that. I mean, I, case in point is, you know, the Democrats are going to move to impeach the president today. The Wall Street Journal editorial page has been no friend of Trump. I mean, um, they're not never Trump, but they've been no friend of Trump, although certain reporters have been. Yet the Wall Street Journal came out and criticized the process, and it felt like it had the credibility to do it, right? Because it, it was trying to play it down the middle. Well, well it's important to understand with the, um, the Wall Street Journal, we have two different distinct sections. So the, the editorial section has got no correlation, no connection to my side. I'm on the news side, and we, we, even, we don't interact with each other. It's very... Church and church and state, <laughs> they do their thing and we do our thing. So we, yeah, we play. We very much play uh, down the middle on the news side. I'm always curious about this because I've done some TV on CNBC and Bloomberg and stuff, and that's very different. You're talking about, I mean, soundbite stuff like you do on Twitter. When you do stuff, I think the great thing about news is what you what exactly how you do it. So like when people whine about local news like dying or whatever, I my responses if they wouldn't do investigative journalism and play it down the middle like you do then 
there would be a reason to subscribe, you know? Uh, for instance, in Illinois, nobody really covered the pension crisis for years, and now all of a sudden they're doing it, you know? And, and so how do you find stories, and then how do you pull on that thread to sort of uncover stuff? I think that is something that people just do not understand. Sure. So about, I'd say, a third of my stories are suggested to me by an editor, somebody else here, sort of top-down a third of the time, I'm sort of on my commute and I think, hey, I should be looking at something. And about a third of the time, I get a tip. Somebody in the industry, someone hears something. And that's just like the first step along the way. So a few years ago, I got a tip that there was an individual within JP Morgan, a trader who was taking on too much risk and was putting the company at jeopardy for billions of losses. And I did some research and it turns out his name, they called him the London whale is kind of a cool oh, the whale. Name. Yeah. yeah, I remember the whale. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but what people need to know is the, the tip is just like the first step of many, many, many. So I mean, you, you got to confirm everything and, and they also don't, people get upset about anonymous sources or anonymous uh, quotes. We don't really do frankly, anonymous quotes. We rarely do, I should say, but, yeah, people aren't going to want to go on the record if they're losing their jobs and such. And everything that we do is, is checked and double checked. Interesting. So in the venture business where we invest, you know, you look at a thousand deals, invest in two or three, right? Because you'll do diligence on some and you run them down and then you go, mm, nope, can't do it. How many stories are like that where you start running it down and you go, you know what? There's, I thought there was a story here, but really there's no story here. And so I'm just not going to even do anything. It's a good question. It's not as many as you would think because probably like in your world, you get good instincts. So when someone suggests something and it's just not likely, you, you, you really know what to pursue, what not to pursue. But in terms of stories that you actually put some work into, I'd say about 25% of them never come to fruition. If there's something there, you can adjust the theme. So maybe you start off with one theme, it really ends up another theme or one piece of news that actually, uh, let's say someone says, Greg, this company's lost $100 million and they're not telling anyone. You start looking into it. Well, it turns out, yeah, they lost $100 million, but they made $200 million on something else and actually turns into something else. So it evolves into something else. Yeah. Were you a business major before you did this? I majored in um, business and political science. Yeah. Okay, great. Interesting. Because um, I, I don't know if you know Francine McKenna at all. Yeah. I know that, yeah, I know the name. Yeah. I know her. She, she was a CPA before she started writing about it. So, I mean, it, it, very interesting. So you just uh, put out a book um, the last six weeks that's selling like crazy. Let's talk about that. So what caused you to write this book? So again, I like home runs and strikeouts, and I like to write about how investors succeed. And there's nobody more successful than the investor I write about in my book. The book is called The Man Who Solved the Market, and the individual is named Jim Simons. And he's a pioneer. He does quantitative trading, which means putting together computer models, predictive models that tell him what to buy and sell. And he was doing this starting it in the 80s when predictive algorithms weren't heard of. This is before Mark Zuckerberg was even in grade school and before Amazon, before Netflix. So in some ways, he really is the, the pioneer when it comes to data science, when it comes to predictive algorithms. Um, and so I wanted to understand how he, he built his firm. Why he's so successful? I mean, he's got 66% a year annual returns. So it's, that is insane. insane. I mean, that's, that's insane. I mean, I don't know. 
you know, the people that are out there listening to us that download this trade the market every day and it's impossible to be up that much. I traded my own money for 30 years and, you know, I have good years, but I wasn't up consistent like that. That's just an incredible record. Yeah, it's, it's not just um, incredible, but it's harder than ever. So they continue to do really well. And as you know, it's just become for anybody, a fundamental investor, technical trader, it's hard to beat the market. People are giving up. They're going into index funds, et cetera. And yet they continue to do it, which is another reason why I set out to, to tell the story, how it all happened. What's the most interesting part of the guy you think as you've gotten to know him? What, what sort of character traits did he have that other people haven't had that you interacted with um, that sort of made him great? Well, he is a mathematician. He's among the most important geometers of the past. 50, 100 years. He got a PhD at Berkeley. He taught at, at Harvard and at MIT. He became a code breaker for the government against the Russians during the Cold War. So he led this fascinating life even before he started investing. And then he kind of shifted his whole career and took on the trading world and wanted to see if he could be the one to beat the market and use science, use math, use these predictive algorithms. And he's fascinating because on the one hand, he's a quant, he's a mathematician, like I said, a, a world-class mathematician, but he's also someone who manages well. And there are, are just as many, I think, lessons about management, lessons about data, collecting data, and, and being somebody focused on technology as there is investing. So it's an investing book, I would say, but it's also really how to build a culture within a company. And he's good at both. He's good at both. That's an interesting point. On culture. So what did he do differently that you saw or you could gather that other people didn't do? Because you think about trading rooms like they seem to be frenetic, uh, chaotic, lots of stress. Um, and, and I think people have this vision of some sort of taskmaster with a whip, whipping and driving people. Um, what did he do differently? Well, first and foremost, he didn't and he doesn't hire anybody who has any experience in the world of trading. And that's sort of the, or investing or, or Wall Street or finance. And that's the paradox that the people who figured out trading are the people with no experience or even any interest, quite honestly. He recruited uh, scientists and mathematicians, people from the world of physics, people from astronomy, people who let their spouses do their own personal investing. It's not like they grew up like me. I used to read every book about investing and re read articles and such. These are the people that are least likely to have figured out investing because they didn't care about investing, and yet they're the ones who didn't. So they took a Jim Simon just took a completely different approach. They look for patterns that are overlooked in the market. They're two days on, on in general holding period about two days, sometimes less, sometimes more. So they take a whole different approach to trading than everybody else. Do they trade all asset classes? So will they trade stocks, bonds, futures, options? Anything that moves that's liquid? Yeah, they'll do. They, they started off doing bond futures, currencies, and commodities, and they couldn't figure out equities for years. And about 1996, they almost gave up on equities, and Simon gave his people six months and going to pull the plug. And then they finally, and I talk about it in the book, they finally figured out the approach, the, the best approach to equities, and they're off to the races. But until 1996, it wasn't clear they'd be such a success. Today, everyone on Wall Street, puts him on a pedestal. This guy, Jim Simons, is worth $23 billion. He's arguably, he's got a better record than everybody, than Buffett, 
than Dalio and Soros, but it wasn't clear that was going to happen. So the, the thing that was kind of shocking is how many shits and starts there were, how many obstacles they had to overcome, how close they were to just pulling the plug and giving up. And, and he wasn't a broker like where he was buying order flow and internalizing it sort of like Citadel does. They were just like trading, right? Yeah, they're trade. They're investors. They look for. I mean, I don't know how you call them investors or traders, or I just call them money makers because their holding period is about two days. They're they're technical traders to some extent, but on a much much more sophisticated level. They're statistical arbitrage is their focus. Um, Paris trading, but on, on a much more sophisticated level. Yeah, interesting. That's totally interesting. Um, so the book's doing great. That that the culture thing that they didn't hire. Traders is interesting. I have a friend here. He's a professor of labor economics at University of Chicago, and he wrote a book called Personnel Economics with Ed Lazier, Mike Gibbs. And they have a chapter on hiring, and they say you should hire somebody. They call it the risky hire. And you, like if, if you're Goldman, you know, the classic person is like a finance person with an MBA, but they said you should probably hire a few art students because, you know, the returns could be wacky on them. They could go off the scale, and that's exactly what this guy sort of did. And he proved it out. That's fascinating. Yeah. And, and they also, they do, they do all kinds of things different than everybody else. But one thing they do is that they don't hire for need. They don't have an open position and look for somebody. They hire people who are just super duper smart and they create incentives and they hire curious people. And they figure once they're in the shop, when they're in the firm, they'll find a way to add value. And then they create incentives. They all get paid on one model, on one trading book. So it's not like most firms which are siloed off and people have egos. This way, they all work together. The people that clean the data, the people that buy the data, that, that um, aggregate the, the signals, all that kind of stuff, they work together. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, in the little bit of time uh, that we have left, predictions for next year, do you, have, do you do that? Do you have any? I mean, uh, listen, the whole point, the whole lesson is it's hard for humans to make these predictions. Uh, one thing I've learned from all the books I've written is the experts keep getting it wrong. Um, I wrote a book about the energy revolution. Every expert had given up on America. We can't find any oil and gas. Exxon, BP, they all were offshore Africa. They gave up on America. So the experts got it wrong. I, in 2008 crisis, I wrote a book about the people that anticipated it. It wasn't the experts. The experts keep getting it wrong. And again, that's the one lesson from this book too, that you can't, the average investor, even the most sophisticated investor, using intuition, using judgment, using gut instinct, it just doesn't work anymore. They underperform. I, my whole career is about writing about superstars who end up underperforming. They take on too much in the way of assets. It's really a, a pretty efficient market. And to think that you can actually outsmart it is folly. What I do recommend is you find some niche, some corner, some small amount of information advantage, some competitive advantage that you have. Maybe it's one sector. Maybe it's one approach. Maybe it's long-term investing when the guys that I, like I write about in my book are short-term investing, but it's harder than ever to beat this market. It is. It is very hard. I know as a floor trader, I was able to beat the market, but it was because I had proximity. So I had speed I was a able to think fast, you know, all that stuff. But then when it went computerized, I wasn't able to beat the market. Um, I also, as a floor trader, specialized in niches um, where I was the go-to guy, market maker in this one thing. Like if you need this spread done, this is where you go. And, and so that gave you a huge edge and an advantage. And that has been all taken away by electronic trading. 
And so that's, I think the thing that is interesting to me is like, you could rationalize with like Jim Simons, Hey, 66% when nobody's doing electronic trading and you're the only one doing algorithmic trading. Okay, fine. I get it. But now everybody's doing it and he's still beating them. And so much of Wall Street is quanting, yet he continues to outperform. Yeah, it's a remarkable, to me, it's a remarkable story. Totally. So uh, what piques your interest these days? What are you most interested in following, uh, do you think, in the next three to four months in finance? I'm interested in energy and the struggling energy providers. And if we're getting in a rash of bankruptcies and how that's going to affect the junk bond market, the leverage loan market, and uh, affect the economy too. I mean, these were the companies, frankly, or a sector that held things up for a long time. And if they all go under, or not all, many of them go under or have problems, it could have an impact on the overall economy. So that'll be fascinating. And obviously the election, we'll see what happens. We'll see who the, the power players um, emerge behind, the money people behind and what they want behind the candidates. And you know, who, who emerges from the Democratic uh, pack, that'll be fascinating too. Yeah, that will be fascinating. And I think, I think there are papers and reporters out there that still don't understand what's going on as evidenced by what happened in England last week with Brexit. And yeah, yeah. And just in general, I just don't think it was funny. I was on Twitter the other day and this coastal reporter was in a plane and took a picture of like farm fields in Kansas and didn't understand what they were. It's like, dude, go to Kansas. You'll see what it's like. (laughs) Yeah, it's important to get out there. Listen, for for one of my books, I travel the country in Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, South North Dakota. It's important as a writer, I know, and we don't do it's a good point. We don't do enough of it. We we need to get out there. And I think is it investigate like doing the journalism that you've done. I think you have to do get out there in the trenches. And so it does give you a different perspective and you start finding new things to write about. You know, you don't, you, you cannot sit behind a desk and figure it out. So anyway. I agree. I agree. Thank you so much for coming on the program today, Greg. I really appreciate it. And um, good luck in the new year. And I look forward to reading you in Money and Investing and all over the Wall Street Journal because it is a paper that I read daily and even many times a day online. So um, thank you very much. Sure. And people, if they have comments about my new book, love to hear them. Feel free to email me or reach out to me on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Love to hear constructive criticism. What is your Twitter handle? Uh, at G Zuckerman. And I'm on LinkedIn. And uh, my email at the journal is Gregory.Zuckerman at WSJ.com. Awesome. And if you ever play um, Thanksgiving uh, family football, I think your team should be called the Mother Zuckers. Nah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. That should be my Twitter handle. Cha- right? Yeah, you should cha- you should challenge Jason Gay. So or Chuck Gunlock. Yeah, that's right. Chuck Gunlock would be perfect. All right. Thank you very much for coming. All right. On. Happy holidays to you and uh, your whole audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, guys. Thanks for uh, listening to the interview today, and thanks for making it to the end of the Limit Up podcast presented by who are we presented by, Dan? I think Top Step Trader. Top Step Trader. Top Step Trader and Top Step FX. Check them out. Check them out. It's a good place to uh, learn how to trade or learn how to trade with discipline. Right, and not risk your capital. Yeah. So uh, we've had a long day. I think we've both scrambled our minds. I I feel like (laughs) I'm in one of those uh, uh, like Stanford prisoner experiments. Oh, gosh. You know, like I'm I'm ready to do things at suggestion that I normally would not do. (laughs) I'm exhausted. 
Okay, well, uh, then it's probably as good a time as any. Oh, my God. I'm so tired. I almost forgot. Check out the blog. Join the Facebook community. You know, Check out our YouTube page. Tune yeah. into our live stuff where we're talking markets all day, every day. Yeah, we're on at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning central time and then again at 3.15 in the afternoon. Uh, Wednesdays at 11.30 central for Coach's Playbook. That's a.m. We're not in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime yeah, – Check them out. And we'll uh, bring your comments. Bring your questions too because we're always uh, being as interactive as we possibly can on those as well. Comments, heckling. We love a good heckle. Bring it. Just bring it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it's Thursday, uh, so get a good kickstart on the weekend. Hope you guys have a wonderful time. Hope trading's treating you well, and we'll see you next week. Namaste and trade well. This episode produced by Dante32. Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.